Hello and welcome to A Potted History, a podcast documenting the story of Stoke City. In this podcast series, we want to tell the story of our football club, the players, the managers, the fans and the moments that shaped the club and the impact Stoke had on the wider world of football. Today we're starting with a pilot episode, looking at Stoke City Football Club during the two world wars. You'll be hearing the voices of David Lee, Simon Lowe, Spencer Vignes and Susan Gardner. This episode will be released on November the 11th, 2018, 100 years on from the guns falling silent at the end of the First World War, a war that claimed the lives of nine former Stoke City players. I spoke to David Lee about where Stoke were at the outbreak of that war. At the start of the First World War, things hadn't been going too well for them. Uh, They had uh, fallen into financial hardship in around 1908, uh, and had left the league. In those days, there were only two leagues, the first and second division, and uh, they'd sort of fallen out of the second division by then. They'd been relegated into that the previous season. And so they'd sort of like fallen on financial hardship, but had rebuilt. They'd, they'd started a new new sort of new owners and everything like this, but hadn't uh, been re-elected back into the, into the official uh, football league and was sort of like slumming it a little bit in the Birmingham and uh, Southern League. And uh, they, they, they finished top, and they went along to the Football League meeting and they sort of said, well, you know, can we join the league? And they said, yep, you can join the Football League. Unfortunately, we're cancelling the league until the end of the war. And they went, oh, but at least they were back in the league, you know. And uh, but uh, as, um, you know, we're going to find out, you know, uh, they would lose a lot of their great players that had um, they'd really built up a, a really good squad, you know, uh, playing in the uh, Southern League for two or three years. And uh, even during the war uh, time, you know, they, they developed a few players. By the time they got to the, the new season, the next season, which was, was it 1919-1920 season, you know, they, they had to rebuild like so many teams after the First World War. At the start of the First World War, we had a situation where there were a lot of people wanting to enlist they were really sort of, yes, I should have been this. Very nationalistic and all this sort of thing. Players even sort of say, I should go off and do my duty and all this sort of thing. But the clubs, the actual clubs said, no, you need to stay here and honour your contracts. Whereas the newspapers were saying, no, hang on a second. Uh, players should, uh, instead of, you know, playing football, they should be doing their bit and joining up. And so there was a lot of conflict about this. Uh, players sort of saying, well, I'm not exactly sure which way we should turn here. We obviously want to enlist, but uh, we want to sort of continue uh, to provide entertainment and, and, and boost morale uh, for for the uh, people left behind because there was a lot of call for sort of like um, football to be cancelled. Uh, and in many ways during the First World War, a lot more of it was, was, was cancelled. And uh, during the Second World War, they'd learnt that lesson and they thought, ah, no, we're going to keep football going and, 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 and boost morale. And, and that worked so much in the Second World War. In the First World War, there was a big public outcry. No, I'm not sure we should be doing this. You know, you know they should be fighting these people. These, these. And it was only after a year or two uh, that they, they realised that, hang on a second, no, by not playing, by people, by not having football played during the First World War was not good for um, morale, not good for, for Britain. And and so they they did encourage it after after a while, but they were slow into that process, and I, it did leave the footballers in, in a bit of a dilemma as to whether they should stay and play football or whether they should go and fight. And a lot of them did go and fight, uh, uh, rightly or wrongly. And uh, as as we've sort of said, many did lose their lives. With the bloody conflict raging, football may not have been at the forefront of everyone's mind, and it was a struggle to get games on. 
they said, oh, well, this is a secondary sort of uh, thing, you know, football. So subsequently, what would happen is that the pottery, the potteries would run six days a week. So that, that Saturday afternoon slot, which was thin enough as it was, if you think about it, because uh, they would rush to get to the games. And quite often they'd have to kick off at about 3.30, not 3 o'clock. Stokes, Stokes kickoff was always late. You know, because because potteries, you know, getting people out of the potteries in time to, for the games was difficult enough. But then, of course, it would go dark because we live in a dark mm. country in the winter time, and we had no floodlights. So getting the games done, you know, was was hard enough. So in the end, of course, what they would have to do, they would just have to go with what they got, which is which during wartime, which basically meant whoever you know they could get to turn up and actually view the game. That's what they'd have to go for. And that was, the, in, particularly in Stoke, was a real problem, actually. One of Stoke's fallen players was Lee Richmond Roos, a maverick former goalkeeper who was one of the great stars of the era. Spencer Vignus is the author of Lost in France, The Remarkable Life and Death of Lee Richmond Roos, football's first superstar. Well, Lee was, in many ways, um, the prototype goalkeeper for the modern age uh, until Lee Roos came along goalkeepers were, were very much almost cannon fodder in the in the game of football they were there you know just standing on their line waiting to get battered by the next centre forward who would come along and shove them and the ball into the back of the net but Lee decided that uh, he was going to fight fire with fire with uh, his techniques for, for being a, a goalkeeper he was the one who pioneered the art of kind of goalkeepers coming off their line and narrowing angles and uh, sweeping around the box. And uh, back in his day as well, he could also, there was nothing stopping goalkeepers bouncing the ball out of their penalty area up as far as the halfway line. Hmm. And very few people, very few goalkeepers used to do this for fear of kind of losing the ball or, you know, losing possession. But Lee used to do it all the time. He'd take the ball up to the halfway line before kicking it or throwing it to a, a, a colleague. So, he changed goalkeeping um, with his style of play, but he was also far more than that. He was a he was a middle class man, you know, playing what was then a working class game. What is now to an extent as well. I mean, he was the son of a Presbyterian church minister. He was a very flamboyant character, uh, a little bit of a playboy. He liked the ladies. Dated uh, dated some well known kind of. Um, uh, um, uh, musical stars at the time, including Mari Lloyd, who was kind of the, the Brit Eklund posh spicer time. So he was in many ways back before the First World War. He was one of the few footballers, really a, a household name. You know, um, men admired him for his goalkeeping style, but um, but but women admired him for his for his looks and and the way that he was as well. So yeah, he was quite a character. As Spencer says. Roos wasn't just a groundbreaking goalkeeper, but also a real live wire off the pitch. We joined Stoke, having just played an away match at Sunderland. Uh, they played the match and they were all having dinner, you know, together afterwards in two teams. And uh, there was somebody in this room who was a bit worse for wear on alcohol and started insulting the, the Stoke players. And he called Stoke's team, what was it, 10 cads and goalkeeper? You know, very kind of, uh, sort of like something out of kind of Blackadder, isn't it, or whatever. Yeah. But on hearing that, um, Stokes' goalie, you know, Lee, he got up, he crossed the room, and he he punched this person, knocked him out, and uh, he ended up getting banned by the FA for for two weeks for that. Basically, it was you know nothing like that had ever ever happened before and gone before an FA committee. It was almost like um, back in the day, 
was almost, uh, you know, you can draw parallels with Eric Cantona. You remember when mm. he attacked the, the Crystal Palace fan at Selhurst Park that time. Um, it was very much like that, basically. There was almost like no precedent for it, and he got banned for two weeks from the playing. But, uh, yeah, he wasn't one who would suffer fools gladly, believe. So, uh, yeah, quite a character. For all his fame, the Enter Roos' story was typical of his generation of young men. Well, when, um, when with the outbreak of war, Lee, actually, he didn't join a regiment to start with. It's quite interesting because I, th- I think because his, his father was a, a, a church minister and he came from quite a pacifist background um, to a point. He, um, he was 36 when war broke out and he actually joined the YMCA, can you believe it? The YMCA when war broke out. What they had was um, they had these things called recreation centres, which they set up, which were at things like uh, busy ports and, and road junctions and railway stations. And they were basically to to help the soldiers on their way to the front, you know, to to give them, you know, a drink of water, you know, a cup of tea, you know, a chance to have a bit of respite for five or ten minutes while they're on their way to the fighting. And Lee worked for the YMCA in these recreation centres in in southern England and then in France and then out in Gallipoli, as well as the war spread around Europe. But in 1916, I think he decided that he'd seen enough and he ended up then joining up, uh, he joined the 9th Royal Fusiliers to to do some fighting. And he ended up at uh, fighting at the Battle of the Somme. He won a military medal out there for his bravery in in one attack where he, he fought off uh, German soldiers who were using a flamethrower, despite the fact that he didn't even have a gun on him. You know, he just did it, Jeez. you know, you know, hand, you know, with his hands basically. Um, but we know now that he died in um, he died in an attack on German lines on the seventh of October, nineteen sixteen, uh, during the Battle of the Somme. Um, but the problem was was that no one knew, um, uh, no one witnessed his, his, you know, his last moments. No one knew exactly how he died. So he's listed um, as missing, presumed dead now. His name is on a, a large memorial in, in the Somme area of France called the Thiepval Memorial. Mm. So he's one of quite a few sportsmen, you know, who is, who is uh, on the Thiepval Memorial, which is, you know, dedicated to the the missing, you know, missing, presumed dead. Uh, the only issue was that was his name, actually, when he joined the Royal Fusiliers, his name was misspelt in a clerical error. Uh, so instead of R-O-O-S-E, it was actually written down as R-O-U-S-E. So that was his, his military record card, went down as R-O-U-S-E. Of course, when his family in subsequent years were trying to find out exactly what had happened to him, they were coming up against a brick wall because because his name had been misspelt. Wow. So there was a lot of mystery over the, the years. For, for many, many years afterwards, there was mystery about exactly what had happened to him in, in the First World War. But he was one of, you know, many, as, as we remember at this time, you know, 100 years on, he was one of many who, who were missing, presumed dead. And, um, and his legacy, really, and his, his fame kind of dimmed in the subsequent years. And he, was, he became a very forgotten-about character, largely, because, you know, because why would you mourn the, the death of a goalkeeper when, you know, for instance, your your father wasn't coming home or your uncles or your brothers weren't coming home because that's the way it was, you know, back then. So it's nice now that all of these these years later, you know, he's getting talked about so much. I finally think he's, he's getting the recognition maybe that, you know, he deserved um, amongst, you know, not just Stoke fans, but also fans of his, his other clubs and um, and back in his native Wales as well.
The First World War provides countless more tales of Stoke players thrust into extraordinary circumstances. Simon Lowe is a Stoke historian and the author of Potters at War. No, the Second World War is fascinating, but I think when you actually start to dig back into what was happening in and around the First World War, it, it's just a different level because I think what we find 100 years later difficult to understand is the sense of duty that was around at the time. And, and, and um, football clubs across the country, the entire squads would go and sign up together on the same day for one of these PALS battalions, they were called. But that didn't particularly happen to Stoke. Players um, didn't go and sign up together, but lots of them did sign up. And many of them sadly didn't come back. Um, but there were some quite remarkable tales. Um, the first one, actually, I think is... Is, is absolutely astonishing. Um, it's a gentleman called Tommy Clare. Um, now, Tommy was actually the captain of the Stoke team, and they were just Stoke then, they weren't Stoke City, um, on the very first day of the Football League in September 1888, when we lost at home 2-0 uh, to West Brom. Um, he was an England international, uh, and in fact his four international caps are still on display at um, the Britannia Stadium. Um, and uh, he was part of a back three who were all England internationals. William Rowley was the goalkeeper and Alf Underwood. Um, in those days, the, the formation was five attackers, three midfielders and two defenders. So Clare and Underwood were, were the defence. They were called fullbacks, but they're not what we call fullbacks. They were essentially sent what we would call central defenders. There were just only two of them, and they were having to try and mark five attackers, three in the middle and one on each wing. Um, which seems a bit odd, <laughs> mm. strange way to set your team up, but that's what it was then. It was all about we'll score more goals than you. Um, uh, Tommy, by definition of being captain of the Stoke team in 1888, um, clearly would have been quite old when war broke out in uh, 1914. In fact, he was 49. Um, and not only that, he'd actually emigrated to Canada um, by this point. Um, and in the emigration, apparently, quite a few of his documents were lost or possibly deliberately misplaced by him once he realised that actually he wanted to fight. He wanted to join up. So he joined um, a Canadian regiment and was shipped across to Europe and fought in Flanders um, through his late 40s, early 50s, in fact, um, the the main battle, which is well known that he fought at, is the Battle of Passchendaele, which essentially is a very um, sort of gentle sloping hill outside the village of Ypres or town of Ypres in uh, in Belgium, with the Germans at the top of the hill and the Allies having to face to fight all the way up it. Um, about two thirds of the way up that hill now is the the largest um, war cemetery uh, on the continent. It's called Time Cot. Um, and the village of Passchendaele is still at the top. Um, I've, I've visited, and it's it's an incredible, moving place. Um, Tommy fought in this battle. He was 50 by this stage. Um, it's absolutely incredible. And it was only when he survived, and it was only when he was 52 did the authorities find out exactly how old he was. Um, and the, the regulations in place at the time said you only had to serve if you were 40. Um, so they immediately did a, a fitness test on him and sent him back home to Canada, where he um, uh, then survived for another decade or so. Um, but it's uh, remarkable that someone would have this desire to go and fight for uh, the cause. But obviously, I understand that he felt it, having been born in Britain and grown up 
uh, around the potteries and, and, and wanted to, to do something. But to do that in your late 40s and early 50s is absolutely astonishing. Um, I think uh, th- these, these are things that we don't, we don't quite understand the same level of dedication that people had, the, the same mentality that they had in those days. It, it, it's something that is very difficult for us to, to grasp. Um, there was a guy called George Turner um, who played for Stoke um, throughout the 1900s. He was actually um, uh, quite an athlete. He was over six foot tall and he was known as the fastest team, the fastest player in the team um, and uh, had also uh, run professionally as well. In other words, he'd run in races where there was money uh, for the winner, that kind of thing. Um, unfortunately for George, he played at a time when um, the, the, the club, Stoke, was um completely uh, caving in and in fact in 1908 uh, we went bust but he stuck around um, and was part of the team that um, played in um, what was actually the Southern League which is still technically the same competition as the Southern League now um, through the what we call the wilderness years from 1908 until we were readmitted back into the league in 1919. Um, sadly, by then, George wasn't able to play because uh, he was called up in August 1917, um, did his basic training. He was posted to the front in April 1918. And within a week, he'd taken a shrapnel wound to the leg. And it was so bad that his leg had to be amputated. Um, so that that was the end of, of George's um, career. Um, a, you know, a, a different level of sacrifice. He wasn't killed, but it, it, it finished him as an athlete. In 1914, there were 5,000 professional footballers and 2,000 of those would join the military services. Famously, there was the Footballers' Battalion, which saw an estimated 500 of its original 600 men killed. Many footballers, including Roos, saw decorations for their bravery. Others have since been posthumously honoured, such as Northampton's Walter Tull, the first black player to play in the First Division and the first black officer to command white troops. Tales of incredible men cut down in their prime are common at every club. Even those who did make it back were often scarred mentally and physically by their experiences. But a few did return to the game. Stoke had a player, uh, fantastic player actually, called Tommy Holford. Um, Tom was um, all of five foot five, but he was a centre half. Um, by this stage, again in the early 1900s, um, they put a third defender at the back uh, and Tom was um, five or six inches smaller than pretty much everyone else on the field. He was a tiny bloke, played at centre half, but um, I always like to think of him as kind of the um, the Dennis Smith of his era because his nickname was Dirty, Dirty Tommy Holford. Um, and he, wasn't, he was dirty because he kicked 10 bells out of whoever he was marking, basically. Um, had no scruples about doing it. He was the first man ever to play 100 consecutive league games um, for the club um, and ended up when uh, the club went into liquidation in 1908 he was one of the few players who we could get money for so we sold him to Manchester City he came back to the area in 1914 having retired as a player uh, and actually became manager of, of Port Vale um, in 1914 um, and played all through the war uh, for uh, uh, for Vale um, he was uh, someone who also uh, signed up and and served in various theatres, uh, various battles uh, in um, northern France and Flanders and Belgium, 
Um, and uh, he was lucky in the sense that he didn't get any serious uh, injuries. Um, and uh, he was able to survive and um, come back uh, to Stoke-on-Trent, played in uh, the, uh, uh, came back as player manager for Vale actually, um, and then became their uh, trainer um, and uh, was a real well-known personality um, in the Potteries, having played for both clubs. So he's an example of someone who was really lucky, who served, um, never received uh, any significant injuries at all. Um, and then finally, uh, there's a chap called Bob Whittingham, um, who was um, a really well-known centre-forward. Uh, we actually signed, or Stoke signed him from Chelsea, um, except there was a lot of controversy about whether we actually formally signed him because Paul Vale claimed that they had also signed him from Chelsea. And this became a bone of contention because throughout the First World War, there were friendlies and games that were played. And quite often Stoke would play Vale and he played on either side in various different occasions. And all hell would break loose at times um, because of both clubs claimed his registration and he'd basically turn up for whoever was slipping him the most money. Um, allegedly, uh, and th this would break out into slanging matches in the press. But he was the reason why we were uh, arguing over him was that he was one heck of a player. He once scored 19 goals in 13 games, including the winner was Stoke beat Vale 2 1 at um, what was their original ground um, in Hanley, which is now where the Pottery Centre is, basically. Um, and he uh, was quite a, uh, a controversial um, figure. Um, because of this, and, and it ended up that uh, in, instead of actually signing for either Stoke or Vale at the end of the war, he went back to Chelsea because no, no one could uh, agree on who'd actually signed him. Very sad. So he was never called up, um, I think, because um, he claimed he had some kind of injury. Um, but sadly, he was one of the victims of um, the horrendous outbreaks of uh, influenza and tuberculosis which happened after the war um, and he, he died within 18 months of the war finishing um, from tuberculosis because um, it wasn't just people he fought who, who suffered uh, there was obviously a huge numbers of um, civilians as well and then huge numbers of um, soldiers also died from um, non-battle causes um, the conditions in the trenches etc so there's a huge variety of, um, and that's just really scratching the surface of uh, the various different Stoke players in either war um, who served and um, put their dedication into, into the, the war effort. The Second World War came around with Stoke possessing one of the finest sides in the country. And Stan Matthews, international right winger. You'll notice when dribbling his peculiar action of stopping the ball and then proceeding. If there's one department of the game where the pros beat the amateurs, it's in headwork. These Stoke players can keep this up for five minutes, especially when Tommy Valance, the trainer's watching. Tommy was Scottish quarter-mile champion in his younger days. With him's another international athlete, the club's doctor, A.P. Spark. He makes him jump. Reverting to headwork, watch this corner and see how beautifully the ball's taken. The goalkeeper is Norman Lewis. He treats everything at its worth and takes a very clean ball, as you can see. Stoke have had their ups and downs in their long history. They're the oldest but one club in the league. But this team is a fine combination and a happy side. 
May luck be with them as well. War was declared when Germany invaded Poland on the 1st of September 1939. And at that stage, um, two games of the 1939-1940 football season had already been played. Um, we were uh, stoked with you to play their first away game of the season at Middlesbrough the very next day on Saturday, the 2nd of September. Um, several players had already joined the Territorial Army. So um, people like Freddie Steele, for example, were then not available to be chosen because they were immediately called up to their units. Um, so actually, uh, the manager at the time, Bob McGrory, um, had to pick um, from... Uh, a number of players who you would not, never normally have chosen. Um, and one of those was a, a guy called Arthur Tutin, who had actually been a player um, in the 1930s who'd retired and um, become a coach at the club. So he was his first game for a couple of years. Um, and he, he played at Middlesbrough. And Stoke actually ended up coming back from 2-0 down to draw 2-2. Um, but it's what happened after that that really is quite remarkable. Um, so Stoke had had to travel to Middlesbrough in a minibus, or in a bus, essentially, a kind of what they called a sharabang in those days, um, a real, real kind of old banger-type bus, because the trains just weren't running properly, um, because panic had set in, essentially, and all sorts of things had been decreed by the government. Um, so they had to try and make their way back from Middlesbrough to Stoke-on-Trent in this bus. Uh, now, that would be fine, apart from the fact um, that uh, night obviously fell around sort of eight, nine o'clock. The game had finished at five-ish. They'd had the usual um, post-match um, uh, chats and all, all the rest of it. So they probably hadn't left till half five-ish. Um, and uh, unfortunately, a, a blackout had been decreed. So the vehicle was not allowed to travel with lights on. So they had to travel so slowly um, because they were coming back from Middlesbrough and uh, they had to come across the Pennines. And obviously the modern roads that we know um, just aren't available, uh, weren't available then. Uh, so they were travelling in the dark, in a blackout. They weren't allowed to have lights on in the coach either um, because they didn't have curtains uh, in, in the coach. So they just had to sit there and it took them over 10 hours to get back from uh, Ayrson Park, uh, the original ground of Middlesbrough. Um, back to Stoke-on-Trent. It's actually remarkable. Um, the uh, the coach arrived back, we reckon, about four o'clock in the morning on the Sunday, um, and the players had presumably just gone straight to bed from there. They'd also obviously got to get home from the Victoria ground uh, once they'd uh, arrived back as well, however they did that. Um, and it was actually at 11 a.m. the next morning that um, Neville Chamberlain uh, uh, announced... Uh, that Britain was officially now at war with Germany. They, they, everybody knew it was coming. It was just that the, the famous or infamous announcements uh, that happened. Um, within two days, uh, most of the players had uh, joined up. And in fact, by that uh, the middle of that week, Stoke had three professional footballers left at the club. 22 of the rest of their players had joined up. Um, mostly local units, but some had uh, chosen to go into other, um, uh, could most of them join the army, but obviously, uh, eventually, as we know, Stanley Matthews ended up uh, in the RAF. So that's a remarkable story of, of uh, the very first day of the war. And then that turned out to be the last um, official um, professional football match 
um, that the club played until the end of the war um, because uh, the league was discontinued and they played um, local, uh, more more local league football um, to keep things going and keep spirits up uh, during the war. Trivial as it may seem, the Second World War did cost Stoke their first and arguably best shot at major silverware. I, I, I would say, in my opinion, pretty much certain that uh, Herr Hitler denied Stoke significant silverware in the first half of the 1940s. The, the team was this fantastic team of talented players, many of whom were um, relatively young um, uh, in their very early 20s and so weren't even at their peak yet. But they lost those years coming into their peak and at their peak, those five, six years in the, the early 1940s, three to 46, seven, when we know that even when they came back together, they were one win away, one game away from winning the league title. So at that point, when they hadn't played together for five or six years, they nearly won silver, major silverware. Um, if they'd been playing together, it was always Bob McGrory, the manager's contention, that if they had played together, they would have won significant honours. Um, we will never know. That's the really sad thing. We will never know. Um, and in fact, um, I uh, befriended uh, the goalkeeper from that team, whose name was Dennis Herod, who was a, um, a very well-known character uh, uh, around Stoke-on-Trent, um, life and soul of the party. Um, I got to know him while I was writing various of my books, and he was always incredibly helpful to me. Um, uh, he uh, himself fought in the Second World War. Um, he uh, joined up and um, was in a tank regiment. Um, he actually um, was part of the invasion force um, of uh, Normandy. He was there on D-Day plus one, so the next day he arrived. It was essentially in the first wave of tanks um, that the, uh, the Allies put uh, ashore. And so he was at the forefront of pushing back the bridgehead um, at, in Normandy, and he would tell me stories of how, at times, they would be um, you know, tank regiments were used at the front line to move uh, the Germans back, and they would be um, rolling through the countryside, and they would just come across other German you know, German troops or tanks and fire on them, and he just never knew which day was going to be his last. Um, he said he lived day by day, and he was one of the lucky ones. Um, to uh, to make it through, he wasn't completely unscathed. He did get injured. His tank was hit um, in a, an exchange with a, a German Panzer, which they destroyed. Um, but he he was hit and did have some shrapnel wounds. But it, they weren't so severe that they didn't um, cause him to carry on. Um, he was uh, patched up and thrown back into the back into a tank. Um, so he he was you know, a really significant person in terms of a Stoke City player fighting on the front line and many were Freddie Steele did for example um, th there were a lot of them who uh, actually fought um, other, others served in, in different ways as we know Stanley Matthews was um, in the RAF uh, he was a fitness instructor in the RAF he was by this stage a national treasure already um, and so there was no way they were going to put him in the front line um, but he, he, he did motivate people um, and also played in the RAF team. And in fact, one of the few occasions he played at Stoke um, wasn't for Stoke during the Second World War. He actually played for um, the RAF team against an FA uh, team. And uh, it, it caused um, the 
Stoke fans to uh, th- you know, just throng the ground because they had spent all all of the war hoping to get a glimpse of Stan. Um, and there he was playing not for Stoke City but for uh, an RAF team. So the the place sold out pretty quickly. Um, and uh, there was uh, it was one of those things like just a, a proper homecoming for the the local hero. He'd actually. Um, kind of been used in a way by McGrory uh, during uh, the war. And one, one of the things that kind of led up to him coming back to play for the RAF and that being such a big moment was the fact that McGrory would always announce on a Thursday or a Friday in the local press that Stan had been released to play for Stoke because he was based in an RAF uh, base up, in, up near Blackpool. Um, in fact, he hadn't at all. It was a complete lie. And so when the team was announced, um, the reserve right winger would be in the team. His name was Sid Pepit. Uh, and uh, Pepit's name would get booed because he wasn't Stan. Uh, so this poor bloke had his, has his name dragged through the mud and his career derided because he wasn't Stanley Matthews, which is quite a high bar to be measured against. But particularly at this time when everyone was desperate to see Stan, um, Poor old Sid got it in the neck pretty much every time he ran out at the Victoria ground. Just as it did in 1914, the outbreak of war claimed the lives and careers of so many great players. Frank Sue's promising career was curtailed by the outbreak of war. In 2017, we spoke to his biographer, Susan Gardner. If you look at the age he was in 1939, he was 25. He was actually just coming to the absolute prime of his football and career he was had just been appointed captain of Stoke City. And then the war broke out. And obviously, yes, as you say, it's far more important. Um, people had far more, far worse things happen to them. But, I, yeah, I, I'm sure his career would have been very different. Uh, it was just at that point, 1938 is the time when you see people writing to newspapers and newspaper columnists clamouring for Frank Sue to be picked for England. Um, and, you know, it's it's just one of those things. I'm... Sue was a part of the Stoke team that had a planned 1939 pre-season tour to Poland. Indeed, in the summer of 1939, we had um, scheduled a tour to go to Poland with, with what was happening internationally. That was postponed. Um, but there seems to have been a connection um, between the area of Stoke-on-Trent and um, Eastern Europe, um, there, there was the famous kind of um, village of Lidice in um, Czechoslovakia, as it was then, which was um, decimated by the Germans, that uh, a number of survivors of that particular uh, village uh, ended up um, in the potteries and were um, really well cared for during the course of the war, and lots of money was raised um, it was a really big cause in the pottery. So it's another example of how we had this um, connection to Eastern Europe. Um, and, and in fact, um, the second story I was going to uh, to move on to actually comes from the middle of the war. Um, and it's sort of a similar idea of how potterist folk would really get behind people and, and would rally to a cause. Um, and uh, there was uh, a fund called the North Staffs Prisoners War Comforts Fund, which was organised by a gentleman called Hugh Irving. Um, and he was basically raising money for um, prisoners of war who'd been um, taken by the Germans who were being kept 
um, in camps across uh, quite a significant proportion of Europe, obviously mostly in Germany, but in, in, in further east places as well. Um, he ended up getting um, a letter back from Stalag 20A, um, which uh, was from um, a, a gentleman who was from Stoke-on-Trent, uh, a company Sergeant Major Smith, who had written uh, to Mr. Irving, um, and this letter got through. Um, and there's actually a, a quote from the letter um, when Sergeant Major Smith wrote, I am no Bob McGrory or Stanley Matthews, but on the whole, we fellows in the camp play a wonderful game and it keeps us fit and cheerful. And this was the news that actually they'd started a league. There, were, there was a 10-team league um, and it was basically funded by money that um, Pottery's folk had gathered and they were sending not only money but also various goods and they, they'd fashioned themselves um, some football kits basically uh, and had started a league in Stalag 20A um, which was all due to people from the Potteries which is quite remarkable. The Second World War brought death and destruction more directly into people's lives at home with the Luftwaffe dropping bombs on factories, homes and football stadiums including Stoke City's own Victoria Ground. That was covered up at the time, um, they didn't, because of morale, they didn't want people to know that the ground had been hit at all. Um, and uh, I only found it in the club archives, which I was allowed access to whilst I was writing uh, the book Potters at War, um, which is about, uh, it's about 12 or 13 years ago now, so it's quite a while ago. Um, but they allowed me access. And I found various things uh, that were, I, I certainly didn't know, um, and certainly this was um, never reported in the Sentinel. Um, but it, essentially, it was a, a bomb that was jettisoned um, by a, uh, a German airplane which had been to Manchester and was following, we think, either the railway or the canal um, down south to get away um, and was just um, getting rid of its load, essentially. And it seemed to hit the corner of the Victoria ground and do quite a bit of damage sort of at the Butler Street end. Um, but they managed to get it rebuilt pretty quickly and keep Stum um, about it. Um, because uh, if people remember the, the, that end of the Victoria ground, it did back onto houses. So it kind of landed on the, the side of the, uh, the ground, the corner of the ground, and, and in the, uh, uh, did do quite a lot of damage to the back of the houses. So they had to engage the residents to keep Stum as well um, about it because they really did feel that this kind of thing affected morale. Um, this was in um, the early 1940s when Britain was under um, serious threat from the Luftwaffe. There was an awful lot of bombing of major cities going on, although Stoke never seemed to be a target in itself. It was more Manchester and Liverpool. Um, and the few bombs that landed in and around Stoke were um, generally being jettisoned rather than being targeted at um, Stoke-on-Trent. Um, but yeah, it was kept under wraps for years. Uh, and I was quite astounded when I found um, that the ground had been hit. As it did after the First World War, league football did resume in Britain. And indeed, in the 1946-47 season, Stoke came within a whisker of the title. We played on. But the two wars left deep scars in our football club and the Potteries as a whole. It can seem trivial to talk about football in the context of such horrors. But ultimately, it's a reflection of the importance of the game, not just to us now, but to the people for whom football was a source of comfort and joy in the most despairing circumstances. Thank you for listening to A Potted History, a podcast series from the Wizards of Drivel. We hope that these podcasts are in some way informative or entertaining, so if you thought they were, 
we'd love you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or spread the word online or down the pub. Our thank you to everyone we spoke to in this episode. David Lee is the author of Premier, 10 Years in the Premier League, as well as a host of other Stoke books. Stoke historian Simon Lowe is the man behind Potters at War, Stoke City 1939-47. Spencer Vignus, biography of Lee Roos, Lost in France. And Susan Gardner's The Wanderer, The Story of Frank Sue, are well worth reading and still available. All links to these books are in the episode description. Hopefully we've done some justice to the remarkable stories and remarkable people that connected Stoke to the two world wars. On this sombre anniversary, there's also a link in the description to Pete Smith's excellent Sentinel piece that tells the stories of each of the 21 Stoke players who were called away to fight in the First World War. Samuel Ashworth, Sam Badley, Billy Bradbury, Charlie Burgess, Tommy Clare, Reg Forrester, Arthur Griffiths, Fred Hargrave, Henry Hargreaves, Dickie Heron, Charlie Hinks, Tom Holford, Tom Kinson, George Lima, Billy Nixon, Stan Ripley, Lee Roos, Jack Shorthouse, Billy Tompkinson, George Turner, Billy Williamson. We will remember them. <laughs>